We are going to begin this morning three weeks on the, uh, the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians and love, and both here and in God freely, we're going to begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But, well, some of us maybe, but most of us might not remember directly, but we're aware of a guy named Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali was a, was a boxer, and, uh, and what Muhammad Ali was very known for was his ability to talk. He was, a, he was a talker, and when I say talk, I mean trash talk. And so he was sort of famous for, for constantly declaring stuff, and what Muhammad Ali was always declaring was stuff about himself. And so Muhammad Ali is, is famous for having declared himself the greatest in skills in the... Um, in the general population, pale in comparison to his, his skill. With human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I'm, an innate, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions and I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I am nothing. The Apostle Paul is the one who writes this. Paul writes to, to the church at Corinth. It is, it's in a sandwich between two sort of really deep theological discussions. And we're not going to get into the content of those, but it's safe to say that the Corinthian church was full of arguments over, over these sorts of things. And so it would have been most logical for chapter 12 just to go directly to chapter 14 and for, for chapter 13 to not even, even be here. But Paul almost as if in a parenthesis begins to speak to them about, about love. And it, it's in the middle of this. And the reason why we suspect and the reason why commentators and other people who have studied this think is because Paul's a real, real pastor and Paul's a, Paul's a real leader and he's been dealing with the church at Corinth. He loves the church at Corinth. He's close with the church at Corinth. And we think he's just kind of worn down by the attitudes and behaviors of the church at at Corinth. And so he, he's speaking to them about, about uh, the idea of various spiritual giftedness and, and kind of lofty things. And then all of a sudden he starts to talk to them about love. And what, what we would infer, what we can gather from that, is that the church at Corinth, while they had, uh, and actually if you know anything about the church at Corinth, they had, had many, many problems. But one of the problems they, they seem to have is that they don't seem to understand how to care for one another, how to love one another, how, how to, to focus on, on those sorts of things. And what it seems like is that Paul, as, as one who loves them and cares for them, inserts a parenthesis on, on love because he's just frustrated with their lack of it and the way that they don't care for each other. And so he starts off by saying, if I speak with angelic tongues, with human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong, noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Here's what, what we suspect and what I think was probably happening is that the church at Corinth, the people thought they were the greatest at everything. They thought they were really, really good at things. They were kind of the Muhammad Ali's of, of their respective spirituality. And so the church and being in the church and being with one another had sort of turned into a, a competition with one another for them. And, and they, were, they, were, uh, they were so intent on competing at spirituality that they had forgotten the most basic thing about being a, a Christ follower. So he says, if I speak with human tongues or if I were to speak, 
with human or angelic tongues, but do not have love. I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Paul kind of imagines, imagines the situation as though, as though he were a, uh, a band leader, a, a maestro, right? And he, he talks about speaking, but then he uses kind of a musical analogy. He says, well, let's, let's imagine that I spoke with human or angelic tongues. Everything I said was high and lofty and it was meant to be beautiful and it was meant to be artistic and it was meant to be impressive. No matter how impressive it was skill-wise, if I don't have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, here, here's the, the thing. If you imagine this this musically, and I don't know what kind of music you enjoy or what you like to listen to, and I, I bet you the, the styles that we would talk about are as varied as anything, but I think we've all heard a band or heard bands or heard music that you're like, wow, they are just not good. And, and that's kind of what, what Paul is referencing. He imagines it like music. He says, imagine that, that there's this band, and they think that they're, they're the greatest band ever. They think that they're all that but they only have one note. See, uh, a, a, a gong or a clanging cymbal just plays one note. It doesn't carry a harmony. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't give you a, a, a melody. It gives you one note. And used in, in the right way, that one note can do beautiful things. But all by itself, just again, and again and again with nothing else. It's not very beautiful. When I was in, uh, when, when I was in middle school, uh, my dream was to be in, in a band. And I grew up pretty, uh, uh, pretty steeped in, in, in Christian culture. I, I grew up in the church. I also grew up in the heyday of the Christian t-shirt. Uh, you don't even know if you didn't grow up when I grew up in, but the Christian t-shirt was, was very, very popular when I was, when I was growing up. I remember that... Um, if you know what Gold's Gym is, the most popular t-shirt was one that said God's Gym, and then it had a Bible verse, and it had like a muscular guy, I think implying um, that, uh, that reading uh, your Bible would make you into a bodybuilder. I'm not really even sure exactly on the message of the God's Gym t-shirt, but I remember there was one t-shirt uh, out there. Uh, not entirely possible with the uh, uh, entirely popular with the parents in the in the in the Christian community, uh, but but loved by by those of us who were who were just rebellious enough to not rebel outside the faith, but just to be a little bit algae within it. And that one ha had a picture of of a guy who appeared to be to be surfing on 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 fire, and it said, "There's no surfing in hell. The lake of fire has no waves." Right? Which, when you're 12, seems like probably the coolest t-shirt ever. Um, which tells you a lot about 12-year-olds, if you think about it. And I remember thinking, that is the greatest t-shirt ever. And having seen that t-shirt, and also being a firm student of, of the movie, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Uh, it just as a parenthesis, if you're not familiar with Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, it is about uh, time-traveling buddies who want to be in a band. Uh, the whole thing is about a band uh, and, and how they uh, accidentally end up in a phone booth that takes them back in, in time. But the core of that was that they wanted to be in a band. We don't need to get deep into the plot. Though, um, while I would not recommend the t-shirt, I completely still recommend the movie. Um, 
So uh, being a, a student of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and, and, uh, and sort of the edgy Christian culture, it came to me that I should be in a band, that perhaps I could be a band leader. Uh, and I took to, to writing song titles uh, for, for the band, not really songs so much as, as song titles. And so one of the song titles was, was There's No Surfing in Hell, which, which later on, if you think about the Newsboys, stole right? They just changed it to breakfast in hell, but essentially that was ours. That was mine. We had a name for our band. The name was Extol, uh, which, means, which means to worship, taken from Psalm uh, 95, I believe. Also, this was the era of Striper. Uh, if, if you're too young to, or old to get my references, you might need to Google like crazy this morning. But this was the era of, of hair bands and Striper. Striper was a band that dressed in black and yellow. They had a name, and they had a verse after the name. And so in my time, you named your band, you put a verse after it. We were Extol, Psalm 95, I, I, I think. And so we, we started Extol. We had Extol, which is the name of the band. We had a concept. We had edgy titles to our, to our songs, we had simply one problem, which was the general lack of ability of anyone in our band to, to play music. Now, as I have always done and continue to do to, to this day, uh, I, I did save up, up some money and we went to buy a guitar. I remember uh, uh, we, we went to get uh, my first guitar from a pawn shop down the road. I remember distinctly we went in to get it. We didn't have cash. We had to go get cash. But I was, after, after purchasing it, the, the owner of a black and white Fernandez guitar. It was a... Um, it was a beautiful guitar. I'm not sure what happened to it. I probably sold it to purchase another guitar. Over the years, I have liked to go through, through guitars. My ability to purchase guitars has consistently outstriped my ability to play said guitars, but that comes into this story later. I got the guitar. I had a name, Extol. I had names for, my names for my songs, No Surfing in Hell, and now I had a guitar. It's perfectly logical then that I would go and form the band, and so uh, I rounded up some other other members, uh, two, other, two other people from, from school, and we formed a band. Now, one of the things I remember about this band, I don't remember any, any practices, but I do remember that one of the guys in our band liked this girl. And so you wouldn't think it then in the, in the public school telling them that you had formed, uh, had formed a Christian band uh, would be so popular, but apparently one of the guys in our band used this to, to get us an audience with a group of girls. And so I remember going over to what I think was, uh, was Gabe Malin's house. Uh, we went to Gabe's house, and he had a little room on the back of his house. Uh, Gabe played the drums, similar to how I played the guitar. Uh, and so uh, um, I think by this point, actually, and this is even better, uh, by this point, I think I, I at one point sold my guitar to Mark, another guy in, in the band, and I became the lead singer uh, of the band. Uh, if you'd like me to sing for you, you'd understand why that's, that's funny. Uh, but again, this was the 80s. Uh, this was, was, was uh, the 80s just after the hair metal craze. Being able to sing that well was not that, that important. We had the attitude. We had everything. We invited the, the ladies in, um, and they wanted to hear us perform our song. Now, as I said, we had not ever, ever practiced uh, probably all of us individually or collectively, our, <laughs> our instruments. We had not actually written any lyrics to the song, and we had not worked together, but there was a girl there. And so I remember uh, our first and last uh, command performance of the song, No Surfing in Hell. Now, 
I tell you that story, you can imagine how that went. I don't know if that performance by us junior hires uh, got uh, him the girl or not. I don't remember that. I, I'm too old now. I just remember that, that, it, that it happened. Um, and I'm pretty sure that the lyrics of the song went something like, there's no surfing in hell, the lake of fire has no waves. I don't think we added anything to it. I would like to tell you that that was the only time I ever formed a band that went exactly like that in my life. But, but that was sort of, that's sort of my MO. Uh, and so I've been members of several bands. What they all had in common was a complete and total lack of ability to play instruments. Unfortunately, unlike my favorite movie, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, at the end of Bill and Ted's Part 2, they go back in time and learn to play their instruments instruments. Uh, we didn't have a, a time travel machine, so we never really learned to play our, our instruments. I bring all of that up simply to say this. So Paul says, imagine that you can say something high and lofty. Imagine that you could speak with great human tongues. Imagine that you could speak with angelic tongues, right? You can do all of that. If you don't have love, you're a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And when I hear that, it makes me think of every band I've ever been a part of, right? There was talk, there was posturing, but ultimately we couldn't play, make music. And it's the same thing with the, with, the, with the gong, by the way. A gong can be beautiful if it's added to a symphony that plays with other things, right? There's other things to carry it. If there's, there's, a, there's a symbol, uh, if... Um, if if you've ever seen a, a, a symphony perform, or if you're not into, into symphonies, your favorite band, you know that there's a, there, there, there can be a beautiful thing when that crash symbol is hit, and it, and it, and it, and it, it, it shimmers, and it has that, that sound. The issue is not, is not the instrument. It's, it's how the instrument is played. In this case, it's played alone, and it's over and over and over and over. It's imagine that, that I gifted your two-year-old uh, a drum set and encourage them to play it all the time. That might be cute at first, but eventually it's just going to get grating and it's going to be loud. That's how Paul imagines, imagines what it's like to not have love. It's a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. There's nothing else playing along with it. There's nothing else to, to give it flavor. There's nothing to make it beautiful. It's simply clanging, clanging, clanging. Verse 2 says this, if I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and I have all knowledge and I have faith, all the faith so that I can move the mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. So he's saying, essentially he's saying, he's like, you guys want to say that you're the greatest at this. You're the most spiritual. You're the most amazing. You're this, you're that. But look at you guys. You're nothing if you don't love one another. And the idea that Paul's getting to here is that we sometimes think in, in, the, in the church situation that, that there's this hierarchy of gifts. Well, that person preaches or that person plays the guitar or that person does this or that person does that. And so that makes them spiritual. That makes them... It doesn't. Paul, Paul says, what, if you have all of that, but you don't, you don't have love, you're nothing. He lists, by the way, a, a, a whole list of spiritual gifts that they're arguing over. Uh, they, they, they're arguing, some of them are saying, well, I have the gift of prophecy, so look at me and how important I am to the church. And others are, are saying, but look at me. 
I understand all mysteries. Look at how important I am to the church. If someone says, look at me, I have all knowledge. Look how wise and intelligent and what I can do. Look how important I am to the church. Another person says, my faith is so strong. Look at me. How important am I to the church? And Paul says, you could have all of those gifts, and if you don't love, you're nothing. I'm nothing. I gain. I am nothing. The idea that, that, that emerges is that love is the central gift of the Christian church. Love is the, the gift that is expected of, of all of us. It is tempting for all of us to be bragging. It is tempting for all of us to think of ourselves, as it says elsewhere in Scripture, more highly than we ought. It's tempting for all of us to look at ourselves in the mirror and compare ourselves to other people that we spend time with and to come back with a very glowing estimation of exactly who we are. And we don't want to be honest about that, right? Most of us wouldn't say, no, I have a problem with that. But the reality is, is that arrogance is not just a problem in the church in Corinth. It is a problem in the church in general, and it is endemic to the human heart. And Paul's trying to remind them, no, we are Christ people, and Christ people are known and defined by love. At the same time, the Corinthians are arguing over who's the best, who's the greatest, who's the most, who's this. That is not, unfortunately, something that happened only in Corinth. That continues to happen in the church. And it's interesting that, that most of us, in, 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 as we've, we've, we've traveled through life, and if we're in the church long enough, we learn how to creatively and carefully do the very same things. So we would not walk into the church and go, look at me, I have the gift of prophecy, I am greater than all of you. I've seen that, and it's obvious and hilarious, right? I'm familiar with a, with a local pastor who started a magazine and then awarded himself the Minister of the Year award in his own magazine. So that does happen, but it's rarer, right? Most of us do not take enough time to get on Photoshop or Microsoft Paint or whatever you use on your computer and give yourself certificates and give yourself accolades. But the reality is, is that many of us suffer from this form of arrogance and suffer from this idea. And we suffer from the dangerous idea that our gifts to the church are somehow more important than our love for the church. We suffer from the idea that what we can give and what we can do and what we have is so important to the church that we need not display genuine love for the church so that we hold ourselves up as above. We hold ourselves up as outside. We hold ourselves up as, well, I am this wise and look at all of those people Look at them. And so in our head, we create a hierarchy. And if you're honest, you typically are at the top of your own hierarchy. You hold yourself up. And so some of you would disagree with that. I'm not like that. I am so humble. But the problem is, in saying that you're humble, many of you say that you're humble, as, as I heard someone else once say, I am so humble. I'm probably the most humble person in the world. I don't know if there's anyone out there as good at being humble as I am. Many of us want to lie to ourselves, but we need to be honest. 
your gift to the church and the gifts that you believe have you have for the church are useless if you do not love the church. If you do not love others, you do not care for others, your heart is not for others. Paul calls you at one point a clanging symbol, and he calls you at another point nothing. And Paul is not trying to be hurtful, and he's not trying to attack, and he's not trying to be mean. He has a message for us, because we all struggle with this. Love is at the center of what it means to be a Christ follower. Love is at the center of what it means to know and follow Jesus. Love is the glue at the center of what the church is. And frankly, I'd rather be in a church that was loving than one that was awesome. One that was skilled. One that was talented. And I'd rather love you as you are than watch you chase a form of greatness that's not necessary. And that's, that's essentially what Paul is saying says so this, if, if I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. We don't want to hear that, but we all need to listen to that. Love is at the center of the, of the church. Verse 3 says this, And if I give away all my possessions... And I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. That's a, that's a strong word from Paul there. It says, if I give away all my possessions, and I give over my body in order to boast, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. Can you imagine? I think that we would all say, like, look at that person. Look at what they did. Look at what they've done. The problem is, is that, that we tend to be we tend to be uh, impressed by, or we tend to individually seek to do things and to be seen and to be recognized, and we think that what a person does is the most impressive thing. That's our culture, right? That's in our culture. Our culture uh, uh, says, look at what that person did, but our culture doesn't typically ask, well, why did they do it? Because that's a harder question to ask. But it's in the church. We say, look at that person. Look what they did. That person gave this gift. That person did this thing. We tend to be focused on, on actions, and yet at the center of Scripture is not a focus on, on rote actions, but a focus on why those actions took place. Or rather, the focus is on the heart of the matter. What was your motivation? Why did you do that? Christianity is a heart-based uh, uh, faith. Christianity is the story of how God in Christ rescued us from our own sinfulness because he loved us, and that enables us to be loving to others. But it is also the acknowledgement that because Christ loves us, because Christ died for us, we can know God, but we didn't earn that. We didn't achieve that. Rather, God did that on our behalf. And so then the focus in Scripture is not on what we do, but how we, how we think, perceive our, rather the, the internals. Uh, so it, it is not our normal thing, I don't think, in our culture to first say when a person does something amazing, well, why did they do it? But that's Paul's focus. I would 
suspect that was what was happening in the church at Corinth is that they had gotten into a um, into a place where they would do things that seemed spiritual. They would do things that seemed loving. They would do things that seemed holy, but they would do them because they wanted recognition. They wanted people to know that they did them. They wanted people to see them. They essentially wanted people to look at them and say, oh my goodness, that person is the most spiritual, holy, and righteous person ever. That was the reward that they, they were looking for. That's my suspicion. So it's, it's a theoretical. We don't know that literally someone in Corinth was selling everything they had, but we can assume that there were those kinds of actions. They were doing all kinds of things, and the reason they were doing them was not because they were motivated by genuine love and affection for one another. They were doing them because they were motivated by genuine affection for themselves and because they wanted to be seen and they wanted to be known and they wanted people to recognize and they wanted people to look at them. If I give away all my possessions and I give over my body in order to boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. The idea, guys, that, that keeps getting, getting nailed here, we'll, we'll, we're going to... Next week, define love. We're going to talk about what love looks like, and we're going to talk about how do you love, what, what is that. But the idea that we keep getting here is this, is that love, it happens in that place where we forget about self and we start to think about others. Love happens in that place not when we perform, but when we genuinely care. Love seems to be central to what it means to be a Christ follower. In other words, Paul is saying, he's saying, I don't care so much whether you could speak with an angelic tongue. I don't care so much whether you could sing with the most beautiful voice. I don't care so much whether you were a preacher. I don't care so much whether you had the best ideas. I don't care so much whether you had the wisest thoughts. I don't care so much whether you loved the, uh, loved the widow in the church better than everybody else if your motivation was not actually love, but rather to be seen, right? Paul's saying love is the central thing to the church. I agree with that, which is good. If, if you ever have a pastor who, who reads from Scripture and says to you, well, I disagree, you want to leave that church. But I, I just want to say, we, I, I want to place agreement behind that as a congregation and say, what is it that would affect one another's lives? What is it that would affect our community's lives? What is it? Is it, is it singing? I don't think so. Is it, is it preaching? Well, that helps to disciple, but that's, not, that's, that's probably not the thing. What is it that the world needs? What is it that the world desires? What is it that the church has that they can't get anyplace else? And the answer should be genuine, true, selfless love. I've read uh, the story about orphanages in the, in the Ukraine. The thing about orphanages in the Ukraine is that it seems like they fed the children usually. It also seems like that if they had serious medical difficulties, the children lived, they must have taken care of 
those. But they had orphanage after orphanage after orphanage of, of babies laying in, in rooms and laying in, in their, their bassinets or whatever baby bed they used. And the interesting thing about this is that, that because um, I read about adoption involved in uh, adoptive community, I've read about Ukrainian adoptions and what happens a lot of times is that Americans will adopt Ukrainian children and they will come here and they will have what's called attachment disorders or serious serious attachment problems. In other words, they won't be able to, to, to connect to another human. They won't be able to, um, to love a, another human. They, they don't know how to do it. It's as if that part of them is emotionally broken. And the reason they think that that happened was this, is because in the Ukrainian orphanages, they had a utilitarian view of how to care for a child. They were feeding the children. I'm assuming they were giving medical care. They were giving shelter. They were giving things that, that children do need. But the thing that they were not giving the children regularly was they were not giving them touch. They were not picking them up and they were not holding them. They were not cradling them in their arms and, and caring for them. And what, what's been discovered then is that a child... A, a human child needs touch to function and to truly live as much as they need a meal, as much as they need medical care. In fact, they can't develop into, into, uh, into a healthy, growing human uh, child or a human adult without that touch. And so there's all able to get past. They think, in a lot of cases, they've tried all kinds of things, but they think because they miss out on that love, that physical love touch, that cuddling that a mother or a parent would usually give, that the, the orphanages did not give, they think that, that it causes so much severe developmental disorder that it's an almost unfixable thing. It, it, it's not something that you can, you can fix with a few counseling sessions. It's almost impossible to fix. That seems to me to be a good analogy for what happens if you have a church that claims to be Christ followers and you provide all the utilitarian things, right? We provide preaching. We provide singing or worship. We provide Bible study. You come and you provide your service. Perhaps you work in the nursery. Perhaps you, you, uh, uh, you play in the, in, in the band. Perhaps you, you do other things during the week. You come and you provide your service. But if you do not have, in addition to that, genuine, true affection and true love, if your motivation is self-centered, if your motivation is utilitarian, if your motivation is simply, I'm going to put in my time and do that church thing, and your motivation may be as well, then I get the kudos from God. I, I've earned my thing. If, if that is the thing, my suspicion is all we will ever develop is other people who claim to be Christians maybe, but they'll have attachment disorders. They'll never grow into what they're supposed to be spiritually. Now, the good news of being a Jesus follower is this, is that, that Jesus is the transformer of hearts and souls and minds. And so even where we've been broken, even when we, if we've had spiritual attachment disorders, even if our, if our approach 
to this point in the church has been self-centered and unloving. Even if our, our approach in, in the church has been focused on self or, 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 or those, those kinds of things. And honestly, honestly, I don't think any of us escapes that critique, right? That's been true of me at times. I suspect it's probably been true of you at, 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 at times. But the good news is, even if that has always been true of us, is that God is the radical transformer of hearts through the cross. And so you can be, you, you, will not, you do not have to live in a radically detached place, but you can learn to love and learn to care. But the church of Jesus Christ should not function like a Ukrainian orphanage. It's not utilitarian, and it's not about providing goods and services, and it's not just about, we're made to love. We're made to love, and that love needs to be genuine. And so we're going to spend two more weeks talking about what that means. But this morning, I just want to leave you with this. Your call to the church of Jesus Christ over and above everything else is this, love. Love. You, no matter what else you have, no matter what else your gifting is, no matter what else you can do, and we have an incredibly gifted congregation. We really do. But your gifts without love don't benefit you. They don't benefit the rest of the congregation. And they're just not following Jesus. So I want to remind you, like Paul said, if you have all of those things and you don't have love, you're nothing. So I want to encourage you to pursue love, pursue love, pursue love, pursue love. Pray with me.